are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today Charles Bukowski's writing as we get back into pulp. This is part two of a series, so if you haven't listened to part one, go do that before you listen to this. Before we get into the reading today, I am having a little bit of a hard time with this because I'm actually into this book and I want to read it outside of the podcast, but I'm stopping myself from doing so because I want my reactions to be genuine. I want this series to feel different than when I would read a Bukowski book that I've read multiple times. Typically, I record the podcast on Saturdays, but yesterday I just wasn't feeling it and I wanted to just hang out with my wife and watch a movie, eat crap. But one thing I did do yesterday that was productive is I finally decided to give the poetry from my out-of-print book, Disease of Ambition, a new home. And I did so by releasing a 2023 edition of my latest poetry book, Iconic Misery. This was originally released in October of last year, so not that long ago. However, I only released it as an ebook, and part of that was because my ebook sales are significantly more than my paperback sales. But one benefit of having paperback is that, you know, occasionally you'll have some fuddy duddy who's like, I want a paperback, but I can buy my own copies of the paperback and distribute them in little free libraries, which is something that I really like to do. It, you know, gives people. It gives me more exposure, but, you know, also gives people something different to read other than the crap that's usually in there. Although some people may say that my stuff is crap, which is fine. And one thing that I did do was, unlike my other poetry books that are available on Kindle, it is currently $2.99 instead of just $0.99. Shock. Because, you know... I've always wanted to have my books available for 99 cents because I just want people to read them. I'm not concerned about profit, but for one thing, you know, for the most part, they don't really sell unless I do the free giveaways for them. My poetry books, that is. Sometimes, you know, someone will buy the paperback and whatever, but for the most part, you have to kind of give your stuff away when you're a little known author. So it doesn't really matter if I price them at $0.99 cents or $10. So presently, Iconic Misery is now $2.99. I'm thinking about raising other books as well. Just because, according to people who are into marketing, they say that if you put your books at $0.99, cents, people assume that they're of lesser quality, which is not the case. You know, it's one thing... To think that I suck, but I happen to think that my writing is pretty good, and I've had other people tell me that my writing is good, so why not? Um, I've tried it before to for, to mix results, and then went back to ninety nine cents for certain books. But you know, my novels have been over ninety nine cents for some time now. Apart from that, I released a new single called Lo Fi Solitude. And it came about in a very interesting way, and I originally had two versions of that same song out, and then I didn't like the earlier version, so I I removed it from all stores. 
so lo-fi solitude is the version that you hear now originally it was lo-fi chaos and it had a drum machine part on it and it had more bass on it and it didn't have the end guitar solo on it so my original intent was i want to make a song that is sort of like my take on a phil collins song and i really like the song another day in paradise you know i don't love everything that phil's done since the late 80s onward but when he gets it right he gets it right and that's a great song so i was like well you know i love that sound let me see if i can do something a bit more like it i i seem to always want to do something a bit more you know high key production and more mature you know that's how we ended up with the not the novel the album sunken sphere because i wanted to make an ambient album that was a mixture of the brian eno harold bud stuff but also russ freeman and craig chiquiso so if you want to support the podcast you can do so by buying a copy of iconic misery because it not only has more poetry in it than before it also has new poems that i wrote this year one of which I'll read right now. Now this is entitled Shit and Love, which sounds like I'm trying to sound like Bukowski, but uh, I wasn't. I was just writing and Shit and Love sounded like a good title for it. The first few days I was always sick from the dust and dander. There wasn't any AC and the fans pushed dirt in my eyes if I sat too close. Over a hundred birds in cages around us with dogs and cats. But I was there for love, so it was home. They treated me like their son, and they treated me well. We ate good, drank good, slept as long as we could, ignore all the animals and front door slamming. Last time, I went inside alone with bags of groceries and only one dog in the house. She was a real lady, and I slept alone in Dad's bed waiting to go to the bus stop to pick her up. It wasn't until nine years of being gone that I realized I wouldn't go back. Walk in the kitchen to see the orange cat eating at the window or watch a bad movie with the pitch black world outside. Sharing laughs at the dumb stuff. It was a world of shit and love. Then love went away. That poem conveys a little bit of the feeling that I was going for. I was in a relationship with a girl for eight years and we were long distance for almost four years and then she came down into Georgia and lived with me but you know whenever I went to her parents house for one thing yes they were all always so generous to me always so so welcoming um, her dad was like my dad for years her mom was like a second mom to me and you know that poem shows that you know the last time I went there it was different and what happened was after a few years of her parents being divorced because when I first went up there they were together and then you know around 2009 they filed for divorce, which was just a really bad ordeal for everyone. Um, you know, and I was somewhat part of 
of that situation. I didn't contribute to it, but you know, one of the reasons why my girlfriend moved in with me and my mother is because she felt like her parents no longer wanted anything to do with her. She felt like, you know, she was being neglected. And then she ended up really missing home. And that was something that I could never really provide for her. And it's, you know, I, I can't really get into that. But the last time I went up there before she and I broke up, I was alone in her father's house. He was some, some he was sleeping over at his fiance's house a lot. And he wasn't there when I showed up. So I had all the groceries that I bought because usually when I went there, I bought some groceries for the house. And that night I slept in his house by myself. So that was something new. And then I think it was the next day I went to pick my girlfriend up from the bus station. She had taken a trip to Maine to be with a friend. And it's true, her mother had over 100 pet birds. I think my girlfriend's sister counted, and she had over 150 at one point. And it was not a big house. They had a lot of dogs, had a lot of cats. They had goats. <laughs> they had chinchillas. They had a lizard. Um, and then slowly, over the years, you know, partially because of the divorce, the animals kind of went away. And when a dog would die, they wouldn't buy a replacement. And so, you know, when I left, they only had maybe three dogs and then a cat. I love that cat. Cookie Opus was his name. And before he would leave, he'd always want to come in the house and I'd let him in. Then he'd run to the door and he was ready to go back outside and he'd, stretch up like reaching for the the handle to indicate he wanted out and I'd look at him I'd say you have to pay the toll and I'd give him a little pet on the head we always find a way to relate things back to Bukowski with cats and poetry don't we so I'm on page 26 I'm gonna start chapter 5 is only a paragraph so this is pretty easy unfortunately I ended up at the racetrack that afternoon and that night I got drunk by the time, but the time wasn't wasted. I was cognating, sifting out the facts. I don't know what that word is. Um, I was right on top of everything. Any moment I'd have everything figured out, sure. I've never had to look up a word while reading a Bukowski book, but um, here we go. So the word is spelled C-O. This is great podcasting, by the way. This is what you came here for, to listen to me Google words. C-O-G-I-T-A-T-I-N-G, which is not cogitate. Gerund or present participle. Think deeply about something. Meditate or reflect. Okay, let me see if I can get Siri to say it for us. Come on. Cogitate. Cogitate. So he's cogitating. Again, not a common word, at least not where I'm from. The next day I took a chance and went back to the office. After all, what's a dick without an office? I opened the door, and who was sitting there behind my desk? Not Celine. Not the Red Sparrow. It was McKelvey. 
He gave me a sweet, false smile. Good morning, Belaine. How they hanging? Why do you ask? You want a peek? No, thanks. Then he scratched his and yawned. Well, Nicky, my boy, your lease has been paid up for the next year by some mysterious benefactor. Lady Death, said a voice inside of my head, is playing with you. Anybody I know? I asked. Swore on my mother's honor to keep it quiet. Your mother's honor? She's handled more turkey neck than the corner butcher. McKelvey rose up from behind the desk. Take it easy, I told him, or I'll turn you into a basket case. I don't like you getting on my mother. Why not? Half the guys in this town have. McKelvey moved around the desk toward me. Come closer, I said, and I'll have your head breathing up your butt. He stopped. I looked awesome when I was pissed. (laughs) Wait a minute. Are you telling me that Bukowski actually wrote the line, I looked awesome when I was pissed? (laughs) You know, if someone else wrote that, people would say, what the fuck? That's bad writing. You wouldn't put that in a book, but here's Bukowski doing it. And he's getting away with it. I'm giving him a pass. All right, I said, fill me in. The benefactor. It was a woman, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I never saw a babe like that. His eyes look glazed, but they always look like that. Come on, Mac. Fill me in. Tell me more. I can, I promise. Mother's honor. Oh, Christ, I sighed. Okay, get out of here. My lease is paid. McKelvey shuffled slowly toward the door. Then he looked back at me over his left shoulder. All right, he said. But keep the place nice and clean. No parties, no crap games, no crap. You got a year. He walked to the door, opened it, closed it, and it was gone. Well, I was back in my office. Time to go to work. I picked up the phone and touch-keyed into my bookie. Tony's Pizza Takeout, he answered. At your service. I gave him my code name. This is Mr. Slow Death. Belaine, he said. You're into me for four seventy-five. I can't take your action. You gotta clean the slate first. I got a twenty-five buck bet. And we'll make a half a string. If I lose, I'll cough it all up. My mother's honor. Belaine, your mother's into me for f- two thirty. Yeah, and your mother's got warts on her ass. What? Listen, Belaine. You've been no, no. It was another guy. He told me. Okay then. All right. I want twenty-five to win on burnt butterfly in the sixth. All right, you're covered. And good luck. Year seems to be running out. I hung up. Son of a bitch. A man was born to struggle for each inch of ground. Born to struggle. Born to die. I thought about that. And thought about that. Then I leaned back in my chair, took a good drag on my cigarette, and blew an almost perfect smoke ring. So I'm not in the same frame of mind I was last weekend where I started the book with chapter one and got used to the style so I'm kind of coming back in fresh and the repetitive 
nature of, of this and kind of the, the play on cliches. I, I talked about this last week. Born to struggle, born to die. I thought about that and thought about that. <laughs> and then I leaned back in my chair, took a good drag of my cigarette and blew an almost perfect smoke ring. I mean, it is... It's either really brilliant because Bukowski's playing on his own style as if he's someone else trying to write like Bukowski, or it's bad because Bukowski didn't really have the intent to make it purposely bad. And I'm going to go with the former because he dedicates the book to bad fiction. Presently, I'm writing something that I fear is taking a little too much influence from Pulp. But realistically speaking, it's kind of a almost a noir sort of thing. And it's based in my demise universe. And it's not a novel. It's just 12 pages at this point. I'm still writing it. But, you know, people tell me that sometimes my writing has a noir quality to it. Um, Chris, who was on the podcast recently, said that the Nero series had a noir feel to it. And at this point, I'm not trying to write in a specific genre. I'm just writing the story that I want to tell. And I am giving thought to the actual composition, the prose and dialogue and everything. I always do, but I'm not just writing to write. I am writing with purpose. But, you know, I, I have a, a bibliography to consider when I go into writing anything and you know for instance Greenskin was written with the influence of literary authors like Percival Everett but also a lot of Bukowski and a lot of Brett Easton Ellis for sure but it was also kind of in the same vein of the short stories that I had written published in 2022 so if you read those and then read Greenskin, it really made more sense. And I, I think a lot about genre, and I worry about being, you know, pigeonholed into this genre, that genre, or people thinking lesser of genres because I often do, honestly. And people get offended on behalf of other people when it comes to writing and genre. And, you know, if you're a regular listener, I can't imagine that you get offended by things that I say very often. But I just don't really get into stuff like, you know, for instance, if Fifty Shades of Grey was written well, I'd probably read it, you know. But it's shit. You know, most stuff that's in that genre is shit. It's shit writing and... If you think that you write something in that genre, whether it be erotica or romance, or you can think of an author that you think writes in those genres that actually has quality writing, please let me know. But here we have Bukowski writing a specific genre, the pulp detective novel, and it's still Bukowski, but it's not totally leaning into the genre itself. It doesn't feel like a straightforward detective story. I think this next chapter is going to play more into what I'm talking about. After lunch, I decided to go back to the office. I opened the door, and there was a guy sitting behind my desk. 
It was a McKelvey. I didn't know who it was. People liked to sit behind my desk. And besides the guy sitting, there was a guy standing. They looked mean. Calm, but mean. My name's Dante, said the guy behind the desk. And my name's Fanta, said the guy standing. I didn't say anything. I was fumbling in the dark. A chill ran up my back and right on through the ceiling. Tony sent us, said the guy sitting. Don't know a Tony. You gentlemen have the right address? Oh yeah, said the standing guy. Then Dante said, Burnt butterfly ran out. Toss the jock coming out of the gate, said Fanta. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Ask the dust. So, if you haven't caught on, aside from the reference to Dante Alighieri, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, we have Fanta, as in the author of Ask the Dust, who was one of Bukowski's favorite authors. As a handicapper, you are handicapped, said Dante. And Tony says you owe us a half a string, said Fanta. Oh, that, I said. I've got it right here. I moved toward my desk. Forget it, sucker, Dante laughed. We've confiscated your water pistol. I stepped back. Now, said Fanta, you realize that we can't let you walk around blissfully sucking air while you owe Tony half a string. Give me three days. You got three minutes, said Dante. Why is it, I asked, that you guys take turns talking? First Dante, then Fanta, on and on. Don't you ever break your rhythm? We're here to break something else, they both spoke together. You. That was good, I said. I liked that, a duet. Shut up, said Dante. He pulled out a smoke and stuck it in his lips. Hmm, he went on. Seems like I forgot my lighter. Come here, asshole, light my cigarette. Asshole, you talking to yourself? No, you asshole, come here, light my smoke, now. I found my lighter, walked forward, stopped in front of one of the ugliest faces I had ever seen, flicked my lighter, and put the flame to his fag. For those of you who are not in the know, fag is a British term for cigarette. Good boy, said Dante. Now take his cigarette out of my mouth and stick it into yours. Burn it in first and keep it in there until I tell you to take it out. Okay, so I'm now starting to think <laughs> that symbolically speaking, maybe the word fag is using is being here is being used here in a different way, uh, especially with this phallic connotation of the cigarette and uh, him making him light his cigarette as a a power move and then taking out his cigarette and making him suck on it. Either that said Fonte. Or we blow a hole in you big enough for the little people at Disneyland to dance through. Wait a minute. You got 15 seconds, said Dante, taking out a stopwatch, setting it, and then he said, Now you're on. 15, 13, 12, 11. You don't mean it. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. 
I heard the click of a safety catch being taken off. I snatched the cigarette out of Dante's mouth and stuck it into mine, burning in first. I tried to engender a mass of saliva and to keep my tongue out of the way, but no luck, I got it. I got it good. It hurt. It was vile and painful. I began to gag and had to spit the thing out. Bad boy, said Dante. I told you to keep it in until I told you to take it out. Now we're going to have to start all over again. Fuck you, I said. Kill me. Okay, said Dante. I want to backtrack a little bit and point out that there are four exclamation points after the word hurt. And then another exclamation point after it was vile and painful. These are things that creative writing professors tell you not to do. It's also things that, you know, armchair experts on Twitter tell you not to do. And then there's an opposite mentality that, oh, you can do whatever you want in writing. Both are not true. Anyway, fuck you, I said. Kill me. Okay, said Dante. Just then the door opened and Lady Death walked in. She was really dolled up. I almost forgot about my mouth. Hey, said Dante. What a babe. You know her, Belaine? We've met. She walked over to a chair, sat down, crossed her legs, her skirt riding high. None of us could believe those legs. Even I couldn't, and I'd seen them before. That's how I feel when I look at my wife. Honestly, you know, you may think I'm just saying that, but... Like, the other day she was sitting on the couch and, you know, she wasn't wearing any pants because why would she? And her legs were exposed and I was looking at him like, damn, you got some gams on you. Yeah, you didn't you didn't want to hear that, but I told you anyway, so you're welcome. Who are these clowns, she asked me. They're emissaries from a guy called Tony. Get them out of here, I'm your client. All right, fellows, I said, it's time to leave. Oh, yeah, said Dante. Oh, yeah, said Fanta. Then they started laughing. Then, all at once, they stopped. This guy's really funny, said Fanta. Oh, yeah, said Dante. I'll get rid of them, said Lady Death. Then she started staring at Dante. At once, he began to lean forward in his chair. He began to look pale. Jesus, he said, I don't feel so good. He turned white, then he turned yellow. I feel sick, he said. I feel awful sick. Maybe it's those fish sticks you ate, said Fanta. Fish sticks, schmish sticks. I gotta get out of here. I need a doctor or something. Then I saw her staring at Fanta. Then Fanta said, I'm getting dizzy. What is this? Flashes of light, rocket flares, where am I? He moved toward the door. Dante followed him. They opened the door and walked slowly toward the elevator. I walked out and watched them get in. I saw them just before the door closed. They looked horrible. Horrible. See, I just know that there's somewhere, someone out there listening to this saying, Oh, this book is awful. And they don't understand something called irony. And I find that that is actually probably the most annoying aspect of being a writer. It's when someone doesn't understand what you're going for and they pick your work apart. Thanks, I said. You saved my ass. 
I looked around. She was gone. I looked under the desk. Nobody. I looked in the bathroom. Nobody. I opened the window and looked down in the street. Nobody. Well, I mean, there were plenty of people, but not her. She could at least have said goodbye. Still, it, it had been a nice visitation. I went back and sat behind my desk. Then I picked up the phone and t- touched in Tony's number. Yeah, he answered. This is Tony. This is Mr. Slow Death. What? You still able to talk? I talk real good, Tony. I've never felt better. I don't understand this. Your boys were by, Tony. Yeah, yeah. I let them off easy this time. You send them again and I'm going to take them all out, the, out all the way. Or however he wrote this. I heard Tony breathing into the phone. It was very confused breathing. Then he hung up. I took a pint of scotch out of the lower left-hand drawer, uncapped it, and had a good hit. You messed with Belaine, you were in trouble. It was as simple as that. I capped the bottle, put it back in the drawer, and wondered what I was going to do next. A good dick always has things to do. (laughs) You've seen it in the movies. (laughs) Okay. Okay, that's not just me being childish. I know what Bukowski was saying there. A good dick. Jesus. Alright, on to chapter 9. There was a knock on the door. No, it was five rapid knocks. Loud, insistent. Why does... He's the narrator. He's the guy writing this. Why is he correcting himself? I can always take a reading on a knock. Sometimes when I get a bad reading, I don't answer. This knock was only half bad. (laughs) Come in, I said. The door swung open. It was a man, mid-fifties, semi-wealthy, semi-nervous, feet too big, ward on upper left forehead, brown eyes, necktie, two cars, two homes, no children, pool and spa. He played the stock market and was fairly dumb. He just stood there, sweating just a bit and staring at me. Sit down, I said. I'm Jack Bass, he said. I know. What? You think your wife is copulating with somebody or some bodies? Yes. She's in her twenties. Yes. I want you to prove that she's doing it, then I want a divorce. Why bother, Bass? Just divorce her. I just want to prove that she... Forget it. She'll just get as much money either way. It's the new age. What do you mean? It's called the no-fault divorce. It doesn't matter what anybody does. How come? It speeds up justice, clears the courts. But that's not justice. They think it is. Bass just sat in his chair, breathing and looking at me. I had to straighten out the Selene matter and find the red sparrow, and here was this flabby ball of flesh word because his wife was screwing somebody. I have a feeling why he doesn't have any fucking money. (laughs) If he's turning down clients and telling them, just get a divorce, you should probably take their money and, you know, investigate. It shouldn't be that hard. Then he spoke. I just want to find out. I just want to find out for myself. I don't come cheap. How much? Six bucks an hour. That doesn't seem like much money. Does to me. You got a photo of your wife? (laughs) 
He dug in his wallet, come up with one, handed it to me. I looked at it. Oh my. Does she really look like this? Yes. I'm getting hard on just looking at this. Hey, don't be a wise guy. (laughs) Oh, sorry. But I'll have to keep the photo. I'll return it when I'm finished. I put it in my wallet. She's still living with you? Yes. And you go to work? Yes. And then sometimes she? Yes. And what makes you think she's tips, phone calls, voices in my head, her changed behavior, any number of things? I pushed a notepad toward him. Put down your address, home and business, phone, home and business. What? (laughs) Let me make sure I got this right when I read it. Put down your address, home and business, phone, home and business. Okay, so he's saying he wants the address of both his home and business and then both the phone of his home and business. I feel like there's a better way to say that. I'll take it from there. I'll nail her ass to the wall. I'll uncover the whole thing. What? I'm accepting this case, Mr. Bass. Upon its fruition, you will be informed. Fruition, he asked. Listen, are you all right? I'm straight. How about you? Oh, yeah, I'm all right. Then don't worry. I'm your man. I'll nail her ass. Why do I have a feeling he's going to fuck her? Bass rose slowly from his chair. He moved toward the door, then turned. Barton recommended you. There you go, then. Good afternoon, Mr. Bass. The door closed, and he was gone. Good old Barton. I took her photo out of my wallet and sat there looking at it. You bitch, I thought. You bitch. I got up and locked the door, then took the phone off the hook, sat behind my desk looking at the photo. You bitch, I'll nail your ass against the wall. No mercy for it. I'll catch you in the act. I'll catch you at it, you whore. You bitch. You whore. I began breathing heavily. I unzipped. Then the earthquake hit. I dropped the photo and ducked under the the desk. It was a good one, around a six. Felt like it lasted a couple of minutes. Then it stopped. I crawled out from under the desk, still unzipped. I found the photo again, put it back in my wallet, zipped up. Sex was a trap, a snare. It was for animals. I had too much sense for that kind of crap. I put the phone back on the hook, opened the door, stepped out, locked it, and walked down to the elevator. I had work to do. I was the best dick in L.A. and Hollywood. I hit the button and waited for the fucking elevator to come on up. <laughs> when I was writing my second novel, Price of the Trinity, which didn't have that name at the time, back in 2014, I let a friend of mine read it. And one of the things that she said was that I used the word fuck too much. And uh, that was an editorial note that I took to heart, and I removed a lot of the fucks when I rewrote it numerous times. So we're at chapter 10. Skip the rest of the day and night here. No action. It's not worth talking about. 11. The next morning, 8 a.m., I was parked in my VW bug across from Jack Bass's house. I had a hangover, and I was reading from the L.A. Times. Anyhow, I'd done a bit of research. Bass's wife, her name was Cindy, Cindy Bass, formerly Cindy Maywe- Cindy Maybell. 
her press clippings revealed that she was a small-time beauty contest winner. Miss Chili Chook, Miss Chili Cookoff of 1990. Yeah, I'm sure you have to be really hot for that. Model, bit part actress, liked to ski, student of the piano, liked baseball and water polo, favorite color red, favorite fruit banana, liked to catnap, liked children, liked jazz, red cont, sure, someday hope to enter the bar. Met Jack Bass over a roulette wheel in Las Vegas. They were married two nights later. Where did he get all this information? How does he know her favorite color? At 8.30 a.m., Jack Bass backed out of his drive in his Mercedes and headed for his executive position at the Aztec Petroleum Corp. Now it was me and Cindy. I was going to bust her wide open. She was at my mercy. I took out the photo for a recheck. I started sweating. I pulled down the sun visor. You whore. She was dumping on Jack Bass. I slipped the photo back into my wallet. I was beginning to feel eerie. What was wrong with me? Was this dame getting to me? She had intestines like everyone else. Why? Why is he noting that she... I mean, is he saying that she shits like everybody else? She had nostril hairs. She had wax in her ears. What was the big play? Why was the windshield rolling in front of me like a big wave? Must be the hangover. Vodka with beer chaser. You had to pay. Nice thing about being a drunk, though. You were never constipated. Sometimes I thought about my liver, but my liver never spoke up. It never said, stop it, you're killing me, and I'm going to kill you. If we had talking livers, we wouldn't need AA. We should have talking livers. I sat in the car waiting for Cindy to come out. It was a sultry summer morning. I must have fallen asleep sitting there. I don't know what awakened me, but there was her Mercedes backing out of the drive. She swung it around, headed south, and I followed her. Red Mercedes. I followed her to the freeway, the San Diego. She took the fast lane and hit it. Well, she was doing 75 anyhow. She must have been hot. She wanted it. I felt something twitch between my legs. A sheath of sweat began to layer my forehead. She got it up to 80. She was in heat. The bitch was in heat. Cindy, Cindy. I stayed right with her far, four car lengths behind. I'd nail her ass. I'd nail her ass like it had been never been nailed before. This was it. Chase and consummation. I was Nick Belaine's super dick. I mean, that paragraph alone... If someone thinks that that's bad writing, my God, what's wrong with them? That's some of the funniest shit I've ever read. It's it's kind of rare that books really make me laugh, and this book is really doing it for me. And I think part of it is that I'm reading it out loud. I think that's something that we are kind of missing out on as a society, is that reading something aloud can give you a different perspective on it. I gradually edged over to the... Oh, I forgot to read that last line. Then I saw a flashing red lights in my rearview mirror. I gradually edged over to the slow lane, saw a shoulder, parked the bug, got out. The cop stopped five car lengths back. One got on on each side. I went toward them, reaching for my wallet. The 
tall, the tall cop flipped his gun out of his holster, pointed it at me. Hold it, buddy. I stopped. What the hell are you trying to do, drill me? Go ahead, go ahead, drill me. The shorter one came around behind me, got me in an arm lock, walked me to the hood of the police car, and slammed me down over it. You shit, he said. You know what we do with pricks like you? Yeah, I got a good, damn good idea. This prick is a wise guy, said the short cop. Take it easy, Louie, said the tall cop. Somebody might have a camcorder. This is not the place. Bill, I hate wise guys. We'll bust him, Louie. We'll bust his ass good later. I was still jammed over the hood. Cars were slowing on the freeway. The gawkers were gawking. Come on, fellows, I said. We're causing a traffic jam. You think we give a fuck? Asked Bill. You threatened us. You ran towards us, reaching into your waistband, screamed Louie. I was reaching for my wallet. I wanted to show you my ID. I'm a registered detective, city of Los Angeles. I was tailing a suspect. Louie let go the death grip he had on my arm. Stand up. Okay. Now, slowly reach for your wallet and take out your driver's license. Okay. I handed him a little slip of paper folded up. What the hell is this, he asked. Cop handed it back to me. Unfold it, then hand it back. I did, and said, it's a kind of temporary license. They took my old one when I failed my driver's license test, the written one. They lets me drive until I take my next test in a week. You mean you flunked your test? Yeah. Hey, Bill, this guy flunked his driver's test. What? Really? I had a lot of things on my mind. Looks like you had nothing on your mind, Louie smirked. It's for laughs, said Bill. And you mean you're a licensed detective, asked Louie. Yep, hard to believe. I was hot after a suspect when you flashed your lights. I was about to nail her ass. I handed Louie the photo. Holy shit, he said. He kept staring at the photo. It was a full-length shot. She was in a miniskirt and a low-cut blouse. Very low-cut. Hey, Bill, look at this. I was hot on her tail, Bill. I was just about to nail her ass. Bill. <laughs> God, Mike. Okay, he keeps talking about nailing her ass. And, uh, you know, uh, one part of me thinks, okay, this is just... Kowski using this phrase over and over again because it sounds like a detective story. But, you know, the other part of me is like, this is obviously sexual. And then the way these everyone's looking at this photo is that this woman's the hottest thing that's ever walked on Earth, you know. And it, it kind of reminds me, I've been thinking lately about how at one point we had a lot less access to pornography. So now that the internet is a thing, you know, not as many people buy magazines like Playboy anymore. And Playboy even tried to stop printing their, their magazine with nudes in it for a while. I think they went back to it. But aside from that, 
you know, seeing a, a woman like this, like think about the, the scene in cool hand Luke with that woman in the hose, you know, if I saw that now I'd be like, eh, I'd probably keep doing what I was doing and not pay her any mind. But I mean, why would I look? I, if I wanted to look at a woman that badly, I would go on the internet or, you know, ask my wife to show me her boobies, which she wouldn't do. That's another thing I think is really funny. The way that people say, don't you have a wife? I, I had a friend a few years ago who's, who was kind of insulted that her husband liked to watch porn. And she said, what am I for? And, you know, I could have explained, you know, it's different, you know, for one thing. Well, I, I can't get into that on the podcast right now. Okay. I was already talking about Suter not that long ago and erectile dysfunction, but uh, I, I can't get into porn talk right now. Well, we ought to bust you, said Louie. But we won't, said Bill. We'll write you up for doing 75 even though you were doing 80. But we gotta keep the photo. What? You heard. That's extortion, I said. Bill moved his hand toward his gun. What did you say? I said it's a deal. I handed the photo back to Bill. He began writing out the speeding ticket. I stood there waiting. Then he handed me the ticket. Sign it. I did. He ripped it off and handed it to me. You got ten days to pay or if you want to plead not guilty to the appeal in court as indicated. He wrote appear, not appeal, by the way. But apparently my brain is turning into scrambled eggs. Thank you, officer. And drive with care, said Louie. You too, buddy. What? I said, sure. They strolled back toward their car. I strolled toward mine. I got in, started the engine. They were just sitting back there. I pulled into traffic, then kept it at 60. Cindy, I thought, you're really going to pay now. I'm going to nail your ass like it's never been nailed. Then I got to the Harbor Freeway turnoff, took... 110 south and just drove along, hardly knowing where I was going. I wanted to read more, but I think the heat is getting to me or something. And my vocal cords are telling me it's time to stop. I don't have anything else interesting to say. And I apologize because this might be a shorter episode. And, you know, I did talk for 10 minutes in the beginning before I got into the reading. And I like to generally do more than 30 minutes of reading. So, uh, I am very sorry. I might do another episode in the middle of the week or something, but who knows? Uh, just as long as you're entertained, I'm, I'm happy. Okay. So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Bye. Bye.